This is Leaving Laodicea with Steve McCraney, and this is a podcast for those who realize that apathetic, lukewarm, flannel graph faith just isn't going to cut it in the chaos that surrounds us today. We need something more, something different. So join us as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. Again, last week we talked about national and personal repentance. We talked about uh, Acts chapter 2. We talked about the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament command of God regarding repentance. It was like in the New Testament, it was a personal repentance. In the Old Testament, it was almost like a national repentance because the Jews were considered under the covenant of God and their repentance was to bring them back into fellowship. But today, um, I really need you to to focus on what we're going to be talking about because we're going to be look at the, looking at the prophetic implications of what's happening in our world right now. Uh, I don't want to belabor the point and kind of rehash the news. I'm sure you read a lot of that yourself, but it's, it's unprecedented economic turmoil we're going into right now. They're talking about various spikes in the coronavirus. The deaths are going to increase. As of this morning, there were over 50,000 people in our nation that have died from this. And if I remember correctly, it was only 52 or 54,000 people that died in the entire Vietnam War. So this is really, really strange times in which we're living in. But it's not just for our own nation. This is happening worldwide. And so a couple questions that we as Christians need to ask every time we see something like this is, why? What's God doing? Um, we know God is sovereign. We know that uh, nothing happens, including the coronavirus, without his permission, which does not mean he caused it, but it does mean he allowed it to happen. You might want to take a moment and look at Job chapter 1 and chapter 2, where Satan comes and asks permission from God to torment Job, to take away all his possessions, to have his family killed, and then to strike him physically with a a horrific ailment, to, to literally take everything away and test his faith. God didn't cause that to happen, yet God gave Satan permission to do that to Job for a reason, yet limited what Job could do. The classic passage is in there is when he tells Job, yes, you may inflict his body, but you can't kill him. Or yes, you may take away his possessions the first time, but you can't inflict him physically. And so we know that God is sovereign and we know that he has allowed this virus to come out of nowhere, to cripple world economies, to to basically put our, our entire nation on edge. If you spend some time on Facebook, you'll find half the people are saying, don't go out. We need to protect our the least of these that are most susceptible to this. And you find the other half of the people are saying, hey, if old people are going to die, they're going to die. We need to start making some money. It's really difficult times in which we're living in. So what are the prophetic implications? What is, what is God doing here? Is he trying to tell us something? And if he is trying to tell us something, what is that message? And how can we as a church understand it? Again, God is sovereign. He's allowing this to happen, but he's not causing it to happen. And so if he's allowing it to happen, like he did in Job's life, or like he's done when churches are persecuted all through history, 
what message are you trying to get to, to us, Lord? What, what are we supposed to learn from this? What are we supposed to know? Are you warning us about some future pandemic that could be coming? Or are you telling us that this is part of the rumbling of, of the birth pains before you're ready to return? Are you, are you positioning the United States and the rest of the world in, in some sort of global conglomerate that'll make it easier for the Antichrist to take over? <laughs> are you trying to get our attention? Are you trying to bring us back to to repentance? Uh, And Lord, if you're doing any of this as your church, are we listening? Are we hearing? Or are we just kind of letting it blow past us like it's nothing? Are we just continuing on with our life like it's a small inconvenience? Is there more to this, Lord, than what we're seeing? Biblically, when God decides to warn a nation about something, he, he does it two ways. The first way is he sends a prophetic voice. We see this all through the Old Testament and even in the New Testament. He sends a Jeremiah or an Ezekiel or an Isaiah or one of the prophets to stand up and proclaim this message from God. Usually the message is not well received. Usually the message is not something we want to hear because it basically says, you guys have sinned. You guys have drifted away from God. You, you're, you have other idols in your life before besides him, therefore repent, turn, do the things you did at the first, and nobody wants to hear a message like that. We as a nation don't want to hear some prophetic voice telling us that what we're doing is not right, that the wholesale abortion of uh, millions of babies needs to be changed. Our nation's not ready to do that, that homosexuality is really an abomination, that our God happens to be our belly or our 401ks or our building monuments to ourselves. None of us are interested in hearing that in America. So a prophetic voice probably wouldn't do well communicating God's warning to us. And there have been a history of prophetic voices that have pretty much been ignored. The second way and the most painful way biblically that God gets the intention of a nation is basically to send them remedial judgment. He sends them famines. He sends them pestilence. There's earthquakes. There's volcanoes. There's wars. There's, there's storms. There's hurricanes. There's stuff of that nature. And they come one after another like these cascading judgments, a lot like it was in Job chapter 1, where if you remember, he's hearing this bad news about the Chaldeans coming and taking away his, his livestock, and then this fire coming down and burning up his fields, and this wind coming and wiping out his children. And it says before, the, before that one finished telling him the bad news, the next one came, and the next one came, and the next one came. And is that possible that maybe that's what God is doing here? We live in times where we face these tragedies, um, these calamities, these tsunamis, and now these plagues and these these unprecedented worldwide natural phenomena that we try to blame on global warming or stuff of that nature, which may be God sending remedial judgment to a nation to cripple our economy, to break down our pride in thinking that we're number one and we don't need anybody. And and when that happens, if a nation fails to respond to that, it only gets worse And it works the same way with individuals and same way with the church. You know, judgment begins with the house of God. If we don't have our 
house in order, if we're not living lives with short accounts with him, if we haven't repented of our sins and embraced him for who he is, things only get worse. Sometimes God removes his hand of blessing. Sometimes he removes his hand of protection. And we have done everything, at least in my generation, everything possible to cause God to do just that. We used to be a friend of Israel, and then we do everything we can right now to try to have some sort of, promote some peace treaty with Israel that allows Israel to give up land that God gave them as part of a covenant. That's not, that's not how God blesses a nation. We murder the innocents. We take abomination sins that God is calls horrific, and we elevate them to the point where they have civil rights. And pretty much a message that I'm preaching to you right now will be declared hate speech if things continue to go in the direction they're going right now. And the responsibility is ours. We live in a democracy. We elect our officials. We basically say these are the rulers that we want over us, and these are the rules that we're willing to accept, and we're We're not repenting as a nation. We're not repenting as a church. And most important for today, maybe we're not repenting as individuals. Maybe we've become comfortable with living in Laodicea and this lukewarmness. Maybe maybe our life in the gray areas is okay. And a holy, righteous God will not let his children live that way. So I was asking the Lord what passes to share with you today, and he brought me back to two. One is in Deuteronomy 28, and the other one, of course, will be in Jeremiah chapter 5, if we have time to get to it. But I want you to open up your Bibles to Deuteronomy 28, because I want to go through this together, and I want you to not only see what it has to say about the curses and the blessings of God and the conditional promises of God that were specifically for Israel at this time, but the principle still applies to us today. But what I want to do is take you through a small lesson on how to be able to discover these truths for yourself, how to be able to look at God's word and and have a kind of jump out to you and speak to you with a rhema so that you'll be able to hear exactly what God's saying when he speaks to us. Deuteronomy chapter 28. And again, this is a chapter dealing with curses and blessings. And before we begin looking at it, what I always do and what I want to encourage you to do is just take an overall view of what a chapter is and see if you can piece together some key words. For example, um, there's this is an if-then passage. Chapter 28, verse number 1. It says, now it shall come to pass that if, there's a big if there. So it's a conditional process. If I do something, something will happen. If I don't do something, something will happen. There's a then associated with this condition. Is there any other if conditions in here? Well, there is. There's chapter 28, verse number nine. The Lord will establish you as a holy people to himself, just as he has sworn to you, if. Okay. Verse number 13, the Lord will make you the head and not the tail. You shall be above only and not beneath if. 
Three times in the first 14 verses, which deals with blessings, we find this conditional phrase, if. And then when we deal with curses, beginning in verse number 15, we've got an if-then passage there also. But it shall come to pass if you do not obey the voice of the Lord. Okay, so I'm getting a general overview here, and I see before I even begin, it's an if-then passage. Then I look in verse number one, and I see two key words that are chained together, two key words that basically are like adjectives. They add emphasis to what he's trying to say. It says, now it shall come to pass that if you diligently is the first one. Could just say if you obey the voice of the Lord, but it emphasizes, no, this more than just obeying. This is a diligent obedience. If you are, if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord, your God, to observe, and here's another one, carefully. Now just think about that for a second. The Lord is laying out for us blessings and curses, and he tells us that it's not just necessarily an if-then passage, but it's an if passage with the word diligently and carefully. It, it demands a whole lot more perspective and a whole lot more initiative and focus than just, oh yeah, I'll obey. Oh yeah, I really, I really need to do that. Or, oh yeah, sounds good to me. This is a, a single-focused, careful just suspect, being, being very concerned about our obedience here. Before we even looked at it, getting the gist of this. And then we find this word obey, and we find it quite a few times in this passage. Now it shall come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of your Lord, verse number two, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you because you obey. Verse number 15, but it shall come to pass if you do not obey. And so the key to this entire blessing and cursing principle here is obedience. And when we obey, then we're blessed. When we disobey, then we're cursed. And the way to move from cursing back to blessing is by confessing our disobedience and repentance, the same kind of repentance that we talked about in Joel chapter two last week. And here's the one that got me the most. Verse number one again. Now it shall come to pass that if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. It doesn't say that if you obey the Lord your God. Okay, I mean, I'm just going to obey God. I'm going to read his word. I'm going to see what he has to say. I'm going to try to understand that. No, this is different. This is the voice. This means that you're being spoken to. This means that his will is being clearly communicated to us. This means that, as it says in Romans chapter one, that none are without excuse, that we fully understand what his command is and what his, he's requiring of us. And we find this phrase voice all through this. Should come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God, verse 1. Verse 2, of course, the voice of the Lord your God. Verse 15, the voice of the Lord your God. Verse number 45, verse number 62, and it goes on, the voice of the Lord your God. If you obey, blessings. If you don't obey, curses. You're having a conversation with one of your children. 
and your children has been a little bit on the unruly side, and you have a, a reward that you want to give them or a punishment for their disobedience. And you tell them, if you will do what I tell you to do, and if you will obey, I'm planning on taking you to Carowinds on Saturday. But if you don't do that, you're grounded and restricted for a week. No electronics, no TV, no nothing. We find it absolutely normal for us to have those kind of conversations with our own children, or our boss has that conversation with us. If you complete this work on time and your sales numbers come in, you get a bonus. If you don't, you don't. But we don't think God deals with us the same way on an individual basis and then grouped together as a church, as the church, and then as a nation. That's the principle he's trying to show us here. Now, the last thing as an overview before we take a look at this, I want you to be aware of is in both the blessing part, 1 through 14, and the cursing part, 15 following, there's these just blanket statements that are made, about four or five of them, you know, blessed, 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 or curse, 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 curse. And underneath those, following those, you find it's God's actions now that start bringing this. This is, this is the scary part. Verse number seven, the Lord will cause... Verse number eight, the Lord will command. Verse number nine, the Lord will establish. Verse number 11, the Lord will grant. Verse number 12, the Lord will open. Verse number 13, the Lord will make. And every one of those words are different. He will cause, command, establish, grant, open, and make. In other words, God is behind the scenes actively involved to make sure that these blessings come the way of the nation, of the church, or the individual for obedience. And it works exactly the same way with the God being God in charge of the cursing part. Verse 20, the Lord will send on you. Verse 21, the Lord will make. Verse 22, the Lord will strike. Uh, verse 24, the Lord will change. Verse 25, the Lord will cause. Verse 27, again, the Lord will strike. And 28, the Lord will strike. Verse 37, the Lord will drive. He is actively involved in bringing his children, those that he loves, into an obedient relationship with him. And if they don't listen to prophetic voices, which we don't, he brings remedial judgment. And it's possible from a prophetic standpoint, that's exactly what we're seeing here. And it possibly could only get worse. Let me go ahead and, and look at these passages with you. So follow with me as we begin in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse number one. It says, also come to pass if, if. You diligently obey the voice of your God. Okay, and what does that look like? Diligently, completely, with single focus, obey the voice of your God to observe carefully, carefully all his commandments. And it's another small word that you ought to circle. You find the word all here, and then you go down to... to um, verse number, the latter part of verse number one, it talks about all the nations. And you want to circle those small words because that's exactly what he's saying. That if you obey all the commands, not just the ones that feel comfortable, not just the ones that, that a lukewarm Christian would want to uh, deal with, but the ones that kind of 
crimp our style, we're not interested in obeying, or violate our sincerely held convictions, or are not things that we want to do, we just kind of kind of blow off. I mean, come on, God, I, I'll be faithful to my wife, and I'm going to watch what I want on television. You know, I want, to, I want the world to love me, and I want to make a lot of money because I'm not satisfied with maybe what you provided for me. It, it, it doesn't work that way. If you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments, which I command you today, that the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. A position that we as a nation have relished in for the past century. You know, we have the strongest economy and the strongest military, and all of a sudden that's beginning to implode on us. And the this is what he was promising to the nation Israel. And again, these promises were specifically for that time and for them at what they were going through. But the implications and the application and the principles also apply to us. If you do that, I will set you high above all the nations. And all the blessings, verse 2, shall come upon you and overtake you because you obey the voice of the Lord your God. It's not just being blessed, but it's almost like these blessings, the word overtake is to overwhelm you, to catch up with you. The the image is, for me, it's you're at the beach during the summer, and you're seeing this massive wave come behind you, and you're in waist-deep water, and you turn around, and you start running to the shore as fast as you can, and you cannot outrun that wave. And it keeps bigger and bigger and bigger, and the closer you get, pretty soon it hits you, and it overwhelms you, and it makes you do a flip. That's kind of what it's talking about here. All these blessings, God says, he will bring upon you and they will overtake you or overwhelm you because he wants to reward obedience. Obedience is so important to him. So what are these blessings like? Verse three, blessed shall you be in a city and blessed shall you be in the country. Doesn't matter where you are doesn't matter where you live, that God's blessing will encompass the entire nation and the entire people, no matter where they're located. Verse four, blessed shall be the fruit of your body, the produce of your ground and of the increase of your herds, the increase of your cattle and the offspring of your flock. Your family will be blessed. Your possessions will be blessed. God says that he's the one that opens and closes the womb. And he, and people who have large families are, are honored in Scripture. And, of course, we've done everything we can to limit our families today. It's just a cultural thing in which we live. But nevertheless, he says that I will bless your family. I'll give you many children, which is the glory of a man's old age. And I will increase your possessions. I will increase your wealth. I'll increase the, the fruit of your labor. I will increase the offspring of your flock dealing with an agrarian society. I will bless you in ways that you can't imagine. Verse five, blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. I will provide all the food that you could ever need. I'll take care of that major need for you. Verse six, blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. Wherever you go, you carry my blessing with you. Verse seven, the Lord, now this is, First four of these were just blessings. Now God is actively involved in this, saying, The Lord, he will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before your face. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. Again, flee before you completely. 
God will do that. God will militarily our God will protect us from foreign militaries. He'll protect us from our enemies. He'll protect us from our enemies as a nation, as a church, and as individuals. Why? Because he wants to reward obedience. He wants to reward faithfulness. He wants to, to give to his obedient children immense blessings like we want to do to ours. The Lord will cause, verse 7, verse 8, the Lord will command I love this. The blessing on you in your storehouses and in all of which you set your hand to, and he will bless you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. I love that. He will, he will command you. This is talking about wealth. He will give you all the wealth that you can imagine. As a matter of fact, he's up in heaven and he's commanding that wealth to be given to you, to be taken from them and moved over to you. This is what God does to people and a nation who honor him. Verse 9, the Lord will establish, he will firmly establish, and it means to rise up or to stand you as a holy people to himself. There was a one point in time when our nation was the beacon of Christianity to the world. We sent missionaries out into all the world to share the faith that is on our coins and on our dollars and in our bills, our currency, the in God we trust. We don't do that anymore. As a matter of fact, we have taken God out of school. We're taking God out of the, out of the marketplace pretty much. Our government is, and our culture is going to move in such a way that we'll only be able to worship God in the solitude of our own homes or locked up in our own churches. That's not what God intended. God will establish us. He will raise us up. He will make us stand as a holy people unto himself, a people who reflect his character. I want to think about your own life and think about the church. Think about God's resplendent holiness and think about the soft areas of sin that we have in our life. And if there's a difference there, we need to repent of those and line our life up with him. So much so that God will bless us, the verse 10 says, that all the people of the earth, again, there's that word all, all the people of the earth will see that you were called by the name of the Lord and they shall be afraid of you. Why? Because we're blessed so much by him. Verse 11, and the Lord will grant you plenty of goods and the fruit of your body and the increase of your livestock and the produce of your, pro of your ground and the land in which the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. The Lord will then open to you his good treasure. The heavens to give rain on your land and your season and to bless all the works of your hand. You shall lend to many nations and you shall not borrow. We're the greatest debtor nation on the planet. And it says here that when God blesses you, that you, not, you don't owe other nations money by living beyond your means. Instead, you lend to them because of the abundance that you have. And it says that he will bless all the work of your hand. That's like from Psalm 1. And everything that you do, you will prosper. And the Lord will make you the head and not the tail. You shall be above only and not beneath. How does all this happen? If... You heed the commands of the Lord, your God, which I command you today and are careful to observe them. So you shall not turn aside from any of the words which I command you this day 
to the right or to the left, to go after other gods or to serve them. In other words, you will follow me faithfully and you will follow me carefully, like it says in verse 1. Verse 15 on is the reverse of this. It talks about the curses. Now, you will be cursed in this city and cursed in the country, and, and then the Lord will cause terrible things to happen to you. And if you'll read this, you'll find there's more text of cursing than there are blessings. And the cursings seem far worse than the blessings. Verse 20, the Lord will send on you cursing, confusion, and rebuke, and all you set your hand to do. In other words, you'll end up with a depraved mind, like it talks about in the book of uh, Romans. Verse 20, um, 21, the Lord will make the plague cling to you until he has consumed you from the land in which you are going to possess. Why does this all happen? Verse 15, because we choose not to obey the voice of the Lord and not to carefully observe all his commands and his statutes. We thumb our nose at him and go our own way. Verse 22, the Lord will strike you with consumption with fever, with inflammation, with severe burning fever, with the sword, with scorching, with mildew that you shall per- that shall pursue you until you perish. It says that the skies will be closed to us and we're not going to have rain and our crops will wither in the field. Verse 25, the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. Says the Lord will strike you, verse 27, with the boils of Egypt, with tumors, with the scab, with the itch, which you cannot be healed. Verse 28, the Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of heart. You could follow this, this same chain of God gave them up three times in Romans chapter one to to lust in their bodies, to do after strange flesh, which we've already done. And the next phase, the final phase, is a depraved mind and a depraved heart, the confusion of the heart. You walk around like blind people, groping in the day, not knowing what's going on. And these are promises of God that happen to people and a nation. This is the prophetic implication of what we're going through, who refuse to repent who refuse to repent. Is this happening to us today? I don't know. Could. Sure looks like it. We've been talking about how we're really surprised our economy can keep going based on the amount of debt that we owe, and the primary holder of that debt is China. You know, we've, um, we're a democracy, and so the sin really lies with us. Pretty much it lies with the church because we have the light of the gospel and yet we refuse to, to let that light shine. I mean, since, 19, since January of 1973, our government has decided through a Supreme Court ruling of Roe versus Way and Doe versus Bolton that it was okay to murder a child inside their womb. And pretty much we're getting to the point that it's going to be infanticide after they're born. And the church has pretty much stayed silent. You know, 20 years ago, we had life changed and we made a big issue about that. Nobody even talks about that anymore. It's just an accepted element in our society right now. And the blame lies with us, with us. Remember, these promises are conditional. 
So let me close with asking you, if you would, to turn to Jeremiah chapter 5. I just want to share just a couple things with you, if I can, in closing. What God did, if you read Jeremiah, the first couple chapters, what God did is he called this prophet Jeremiah, and he said, before you were even born, I called you to be a prophet. And I, I'm going I'm to make you strong, because the message I'm going to give you is a message that people are not going to want to hear. And so he sent Jeremiah to basically survey his people and what his people were doing, and to report back to God about whether they're following God's law or whether they're involved with things that would bring judgment upon them. And then Jeremiah's job was to be one of those prophetic voices that tried to turn the nation from their sinful ways back to God. And so in chapter 5 and chapter 6, he has a summary of some of the sins that Judah was doing at that time. And I want to just point out a couple of these verses to you and see if these sins don't seem like the very ones we as a people and as a nation have. First one, of course, was blasphemy and lies. We'll um, look at verse number one. It says, run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. See now and know and seek for her open places. If you can find a man, if there is anyone who executes judgment, who seeks the truth, and I will pardon her. If you go through Jerusalem, find one person who's righteous, and I will remove the sin from Jerusalem. Well, what is her sin? The first one, lies and blasphemy. Verse number two, though they say, as the Lord lives, surely they swear falsely. They claim God's name. I'm telling you the truth. I swear to God, put my hand on the Bible and testify in Congress or in court, and yet they lie. And we do that all the time as a nation. Our elected officials do that as a nation. And we broadcast it on television, and everybody knows they lie. And nobody cares. What else did you see, Jeremiah? We saw immorality. We saw sexual sin. We saw living contrary to God's word. Verse number seven. How shall I pardon you for this? For your children have forsaken me and sworn by those that are not gods, which I fed them to full. They committed adultery. They assembled themselves by troops in the harlot's house. Sexual promiscuity and sexual sins are everywhere. They're, they're all over the television set. I mean, there's... There's, there's no way you can watch a television show that's not inundated with some sort of immoral situation. And we become blind to it. It doesn't bother us anymore. Oh, we just ignore that because the story's really good. Which brings us to the third problem that Jeremiah saw, which was arrogance and pride. Verse number 12. They have lied about the Lord and said, is, is it not he... Neither will evil come upon us, nor shall we see sword or famine. And all the prophets became wind, for the word is not in them, thus shall it be done to them. We've gone to the prophets, and the prophets have said, no, it's okay. What you're doing is fine. God doesn't really care. It's, it's going to be wonderful. You keep living what you're living right now, preaching a health and wealth and prosperity kind of message. See anything else, Jeremiah? Yeah, I saw injustice. I saw the rich getting richer and the poor getting poor and nobody taking care of the needs of those that are hurting. Verse number 25. Your iniquities have turned these things away and your sins have withheld good from you. For among my people are found wicked men. They lie in and wait as one who sets snares. They set a trap 
to catch men. It's like Proverbs chapter one. As a cage is full of birds, so their houses are full of deceit. Therefore, they have become great and grown rich. They have grown fat and are sleek. Yes, they surpass the deeds of the wicked. They do not plead the cause, the cause of the fatherless, yet they prosper. And the right of the needy they do not defend. So shall I not punish them for these things, says the Lord? Shall not I avenge myself on a nation such as this? We see that in our own nation today, especially during this coronavirus, where companies are more feel more about making profits than they are about taking care of people. And we find that the little man has no voice in the courtroom anymore. And we're called to defend the fatherless. There's religious corruption, which is the saddest of all. Verse 30 and 31, an astonishing and horrible thing has been committed in the land, he says. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule by their own power, and my people love to have it so. But what will you do in the end? Preachers are preaching based on their own charisma. We're building monuments to ourselves in megachurches. Prophets are, are speaking their own mind in the things people want to hear which is what it talks about in Revelation chapter 3 in the Laodicean church age, rather than what God says. And the people hearing this have closed their mind. They're not interested in the truth anymore. Instead, truth is relative, and truth is something that, that they want to hold on to themselves that fits their own worldview. Chapter 6, verse 10. To whom shall I speak and give warning? that they may hear. Who will listen to my voice? Indeed, their ear is uncircumcised, and they cannot give heed. Behold, the word of the Lord is a reproach to them, and they have no delight in it. Why? Why? Why do we not want to hear about self-sacrifice? Why do we not want to hear about meeting the needs of others? Why do we not want to hear about making God first in your life and not yourself? Because, and this is the last one I'll share with you, because of greed. Our nation is built on greed. Our nation honors greed. It honors wealth. It honors the accumulation of wealth at the extent of everything else. Verse 13, chapter 6. Because from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone is given to covetousness. Everyone is given to greed. And from the prophet, even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. Why? Because I want to make a buck, because that's the way business is done, because God, you're not sovereign in my life when it comes to my finances. This is, this is what we're facing today. Now, I have no idea if God is bringing judgment upon our nation, but Billy Graham said many, many years ago that if God, I mean, decades ago, that if God does not judge America for her sin, that he will have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah because our sin is so great because our blessings have been off the charts. Same thing for you as an individual. Same thing for us as a church. And so as we look at these promises and we look at what's happening to the world out there and we look at how God is maybe bringing this coronavirus to show us how truly not in control we are, maybe it's time to 
put him first in all things. Maybe it's time to get on our knees and repent, not of the black sins, but of the gray sins, of the lukewarm sins, of those things that keep us from a deep fellowship with him. And see if he does it, as he said in Malachi, pour out a blessing on us so great that we can't even contain it, that our blessing will overwhelm us and overtake us even during dark times. Pray about this this week. Search your own heart and look at the situations we're facing and see if God isn't speaking to us through this crisis. 